Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Namortasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Namortasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Bodhangamang Sankhang Namasami So this is a very, a very lovely occasion for me. It's uh, wonderful to be able to, at last, visit Jambirudamo in his monastery, beautiful place here, and uh, to spend time together after quite a number of years. Um, and to um, participate with, with, with everybody in this uh, Wesak festival the uh, commemoration, celebration of the Buddha, his birth, his light, enlightenment, and his parinibbana. <clears throat> I didn't really have much of an idea of what I would talk about. Uh, we have this wonderful uh, training passed on from Lumpur Cha, where we don't kind of think out what we're going to say before we give a talk, but rather um, uh, relax, breathe, and see what arises. So it makes it very um, interesting, very exciting, actually. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to see what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, my intention, of course, is to um, share something of um, my experience of practice, my enthusiasm for practice, and hopefully to share something that you'll find valuable um, in your own lives, in your own Buddhist practice, or if you're not Buddhist, in your own practice, whatever you are. Um, because one of the most uh, significant things, I think, about Buddhist practice and Buddhist teaching is that it's a, a universal teaching. Uh, when I first visited the Vihara uh, that Ajahn V was talking about in, in London, um, I arrived there one evening for the evening puja and I was a layperson at the time obviously and I came and I saw these monks. Ajahn V was there, probably, almost certainly. and. <laughs> Ajahn Anando, Ajahn Sumedho, um, Ajahn Kemadamo, I think, and a Samanera, maybe, and some novices. And they all looked rather different from most of the people that I knew. In fact, totally different from anybody I knew. Um, the chanting, the bowing, all of that was obviously totally foreign. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And yet, when the time came for a Dhamma reflection, it just, I, could, I just drank it in. It just felt like perfect sense. 
um, I thought, yeah, this, 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 this I can relate to. This is, this is good sense. Um, and it actually took me a very long time <laughs> to realize that this was actually a specific teaching of the Buddha. Like the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, whatever it was, I just thought was good sense. I didn't realize it was Buddhism. Uh, up until that time, I'd been practicing within a number of different traditions. I was brought up as a Christian, went through a phase of being very devout when I was in my teens, and then rejected it all, and then went through university. And at the end of university, I was totally confused, um, because I rejected it. I rejected religion fairly wholeheartedly, believing that I needed to find out about life through direct experience, which is kind of... But I didn't need to experience all the things I experienced, perhaps. Anyway, I had a lot of experience, and at the end I was quite confused. And quite disturbed, because although I, I was a bit wild, a bit rebellious, I also wanted to, to be good, I wanted to be kind. These were values that were important to me in my life as a human being. Um, I didn't want to be mean, I didn't want to be um, uh, jealous, certainly didn't want to be jealous, didn't want to worry about things, didn't want to be afraid of things, all kinds of things I didn't want. And um, a friend of mine had just started meditating and talked to me about it and I thought, ah, maybe I need to meditate, maybe that, that'll help. And at that time there was a Sufi group in Edinburgh, people who practiced um, different had different Sufi practices, chanting and uh, movements and um, meditation. A lot of, I remember the first meditation I ever did was a visualization practice of, of light, imagining the sun rising and allowing it to fill the whole of my being and then radiating it out. Very, very beautiful practices we did and um, it was very lovely. And I spent a number of years within a particular Sufi group and then one of the people in the group was a Christian priest, very good friend, and he encouraged me back into Christianity, and he, he taught contemplative Christianity, uh, which I also really loved and found very uh, helpful. And by this time I was getting a bit confused because Christianity was a really beautiful way of practice. Islam was extraordinary. I mean... This was this, this, this sort of more mystical aspect of Islam was quite extraordinary and really helpful. And I couldn't actually at that time see how they could both be right. And then I came across um, somebody who taught Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. <laughs> <laughs> and I began to go to a Kabbalah group. And what I liked about that was a very systematic, a very clear structure, the tree of life, that... Um, actually helped me to make sense of the other paths that I'd come across and practiced within and loved. And so things were gradually coming together um, and eventually landed up at the Hampstead Vihara uh, with Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Viridamo and the other monks. And um, I loved it. And I never, ever imagined I would be a nun. In fact, um, when my boyfriend started talking about becoming a, an anagarika, he was very enthusiastic as well. 
I remember saying to him, oh, that's much too extreme. <laughs> you know, much better to practice as a layperson. You don't, you don't have to be a monk. And I think that was enough to put him off. <laughs> well, something happened. And uh, then I did a retreat, and it was during that retreat that something happened for me that actually uh, uh, made me realise that I was quite possibly going to land up as, as a nun. Ajahn Sumedho had was talking about Chithurst. We had a, a kind of map on the, on the wall of the meditation hall with Chithurst marked on it. And so um, every evening, I think that the monks would sort of dedicate their practice and think about this uh, place where there was going to be a monastery. And uh, one day Ajahn Sumedho was talking about uh, the Chithurst, the monastery, that and they'd been given a forest there. and the um, idea of having a proper training monastery for monks. And then he added, maybe as a sort of afterthought, and maybe even a place where, where women can come and train as nuns. And uh, I immediately sort of had a little light come on and thought, and in fact, I imagined a scramble. I imagine all of the women there would be scrambling, <laughs> queuing up <laughs> to become nuns. And in fact, I was the only one of that group. <laughs> So um, it was a very, very important time uh, because what happened was I could actually see how the practice could work. Um, I remember I had this interview with Ajahn Sumedho and uh, I remember bursting into tears and he was, well, he, first of all he asked me how I was getting on and I said, oh, I just love it, it's just wonderful. And the monastic routine, I just love it, I just love the, the structure of it all and the way of practice, just wonderful. And then I just started crying, and I said, but I have all these terrible thoughts, these awful emotions. That time I think it was pride. I have so much pride. And he looked a bit surprised, because I was very distressed. I remember sort of, he went quiet, and the other monk beside him sort of looked down. <laughs> there I was, looking, you know, in a state of great distress. And then, just very quietly, he said, he said, you know, it's not, it's not the condition that's the problem. It's the not wanting it. That's the suffering. And somehow or other I got it. So I sensed that if I could just, you know, continue on this path of practice, that maybe in due course I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. Which was a very wonderful thought. Up until then, I'd kind of never really uh, envisaged an end of the kind of dukkha I was having, you know, wanting to be, wanting to be perfect, uh, not wanting to have difficult negative emotions, um, wanting to be happy. Well, we all want to be happy, don't we? And it, it didn't, I, none of the, um, I just didn't feel I could do it. But then the little light went on and I thought, yes, if I follow this, I'm, I was fairly confident. And particularly having the monks there, because um, it's fine to hear these teachings. You, know, you think, yes, that makes good sense. But for me, it was really important that there were people who were living in this way. And the fact that they'd shaved their heads and they were wearing these clothes, and that they were living a very, well, what seemed at that time like a very austere, lifetime, I thought, well, there must be something good about this. There must be something in it for them to have given up so much to, to devote their lives to this way of practice. 
So there were a variety of things that kind of uh, came together to um, encourage me to take this step. Also, I think the fact that, I mean, Ajahn Sumedho, you've, you've met him, and well, many of you will, you will have met him, and have a chance to meet him soon when he visits. And he's, a, he's big, and he's very um, charismatic, very inspiring. And uh, one of the thoughts I had during the retreat, I thought, well, yes, Ajahn Sumedho can do it, but I don't think I can do it. And then uh, it was very sweet. He invited each of the other monks on the retreat. You weren't there, I don't think, Bonte, to give a little talk. And when I heard them speak, you know, I realised that they, they, they were struggling, that it wasn't so easy for them, and that they, were, they didn't seem quite so superhuman somehow. Uh, clearly they were good good, uh, sincere practitioners, but they weren't superhuman like I, the way I saw Ajahn Sumedho. So I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so this was another thing that I found encouraging. So it can be interesting, like when we contemplate the life of the Buddha, because the Buddha is our teacher, um, the Buddha who lived this extraordinary life, you know, who was born... Um, in a royal family. Um, at the time of his birth, there were all these various sort of signs um, that made people realize, you know, people who could read the signs, they realized that this was somebody who was going to be very significant, very special person. And as we know, he, his parents were told either he's going to be a, um, a universal wheel-turning monarch or he's going to be an enlightened Buddha. And so there was, there was definitely something special about this young child who was born to, um, gosh, what was his mother's name? It escapes me. What's the name of his mother? What's his mother? No, that was, that was, that was his aunt. Anyway, it'll come to him. Mahaya. Yeah, that's right, yes. So he, he, he was born, and then shortly after his birth, his mother passed away. And he was raised by Mahapajapati, his aunt, who later became the first nun. She must have been a very remarkable lady, I think, extremely determined. Um, but that's another story. So the story has it that the Buddha was, uh, lived a very privileged life. He had everything that he could possibly want, and he was not exposed to the um, uh, sufferings that most human beings experience. According to the legend, he was protected. He stayed in a very uh, refined, very enclosed environment um, surrounded by people who were intent on um, supporting him and um, making life pleasant for him. Very gifted, very skilled, uh, very, very much liked. Uh, but at a certain stage he, he um, came across the specter of old age, uh, sickness and death the Devadutas, the heavenly messengers, and that made him seriously question 
the values with which he'd grown up. He saw the limitations of worldly success, wealth, uh, beauty, popularity, all the skills that he had. He saw the limitations of those things. He realised that um, they weren't going to uh, prevent himself, his own body, and the bodies of all those that he held dear. They weren't going to prevent them from dying, that this was an inevitable fact of life, where there's birth, there's death. And this was extremely troubling to him. Just to realise the uncertainty of life, the shakiness of the foundations that um, with which he lived. So this concern led him to leave the security of the palace, of his home, of all of his family, his relations, his good friends, to leave them all. Very brave move. And just to set off with nothing in order to uh, discover uh, some way of um, coming to terms with um, the human predicament. So as we know, on the full moon of May, uh, at the place that is now known as Bodhgaya, he attained to the state of perfect liberation. <clears throat> he then um, gave his first teaching. And one of my favorite bits of the Dhammachaka Sutta, which was the first teaching that he gave to his uh, former companions, his former religious companions, the five ascetics. Uh, one of my favorite bits is where it says that the Venerable Kandanya of Kandanya understood, he got it. It was quite a, quite a long teaching. <coughs> Those of you who are familiar with the Dhammachaka Sutta, it's a long teaching, but there's this one little place where it says Kandanya got it. And what did he get? What, did, what, what was the insight? Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. That was the insight. <laughs> that was the setting in, that was the, the wheel of Dhamma that was set in motion at that time. So the Buddha realized uh, truth. He realized, came to a realization of understanding. But more importantly for us was that he found a way to uh, communicate that. He spent quite a long time just contemplating um, his insight. Um, and those of you who are familiar with the scriptures will know about dependent origination, which was his first um, uh, analysis of the human predicament, how um, that it's ignorance, not understanding, that causes suffering. And then the different stages that take us to suffering. And then the second perhaps better known teaching, which is the teaching he gave to the five ascetics, is the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering. Life as a human being is difficult. There's no getting away from that. It's difficult. <laughs> there's struggle. There are black flies. There are, there's heat. There's cold. Uh, there's getting old, getting creaky, uh, being misunderstood. Uh, endless, endless 
human beings are very good at finding ways of suffering. And uh, however, the Buddha was had this wonderful uh, realization and wonderful insight that he uh, and wonderful way of communicating this. So it wasn't just he had the insight; he found a way to communicate it in order that others uh, could understand and be encouraged in a way of life, in a way of practice, uh, that they too could uh, attain to a state where they no longer needed to suffer in these ways. They weren't going to get away from old age, they weren't get to, going to get away from sickness, and they weren't get to, going to get away from the death of their own bodies and the bodies of those that they loved. But they were going to get away from the um, suffering, the, the mind-made suffering around these things. This goes back a little bit to the little insight I had with Ajahn Sumedho. It's not so much the condition, it's the minding it that is the problem. I remember when my parents died and feeling a tremendous sense of sorrow. A lot of, lot of grief arose. And, and I didn't, actually, there was no suffering. There was sorrow, but there was no suffering. I was able to, to let go, to allow it to go, to stay with the process of grief arising <coughs> and then joy arising. The two went very closely together. So I remember my dad's funeral. Everybody said, that was a great funeral. <laughs> because we were able to uh, acknowledge our sorrow and also experience a lot of joy, celebrating a life that had been well lived. So sometimes I think we can be very afraid of uh, bereavement or uh, the kind of difficulties that we, we may experience in this human realm. And when there's mindfulness, when there's presence, we actually don't need to suffer about them. I remember before my parents died, you know, thinking, well, either I can dread their death and spend the next, I don't know how many years uh, with them, but always frightened that they're going to die, or I can enjoy being with them. I mean, Ajahn Viridhamma is the most wonderful example of the time with his mother. You know, just being right there with her, taking care, and experiencing a lot of joy and celebrating the opportunity to um, be with such a person. And then the time of death comes, and of course there's sorrow, there's grieving, sadness, that the person is no longer going to be there in the way that we've known them. So this teaching of the Buddha that um, supports or encourages us to be present with conditions, to know that they're changing, it's a flow. Life is a flow. It's not a fixed, solid thing. So happiness, joy, is not a fixed, solid thing. Uh, confusion, grief, anger, fear, jealousy, these are not fixed, solid things. They're part of a process that we can experience as human beings. And we don't need to be afraid of them. <laughs> they arise, they cease. We can be curious about them. One of the things I always talk about is curiosity, the importance of curiosity. Just like the Buddha at the time of his, well, he left the palace because he was curious. He wanted to know. He wanted to find out. He investigated. He studied his own mind and body. 
just to figure out how it worked. What were the causes of misery? What were the causes of peace and well-being? So he set a very wonderful example, very wonderful precedent for us in uh, encouraging these things. He also encouraged um, us to live carefully and responsibly. So for us as Buddhist practitioners, we try to avoid causing harm to any other creature. We try to avoid any form of dishonesty, sexual misconduct, wrong speech, intoxication, which of course makes it difficult to stay on the straight and narrow when you're a bit intoxicated. So to, to, to maintain a sense of mental clarity and alertness encourages us to be generous, to practice generosity, to help each other, to support each other. These are things that bring joy and cultivation, mind cultivation. So we really look into the mind. We learn about the mind. We cultivate a sense of inner steadiness in order to observe the way that the mind works. So the Buddha gave a very complete package. He was fortunate. He had a good long time to do it. You know, he was enlightened at the age of 35, and he, it was, he was 80 years old when he passed away, when he went for his, his Parinibbana. So a long time to um, develop a teaching style to cultivate community. The um, community of the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and then the householders, lay, lay men, lay women, enabling everybody to benefit from the practice. As Sajjan Viradhamma was saying this morning, you know, we're not, the monks and nuns don't disappear off, but we have to have a regular daily contact with, with, with people in order to receive our food, in order to survive. It gives an opportunity for people to draw close as well, to be encouraged. So we support each other, we encourage each other. And I remember thinking, what an amazing uh, legacy he left. And I thought, what a brilliant mind to think it all out. And then I was talking yesterday with some people and realizing that he probably didn't actually think it all out. He probably didn't have a computer or a pencil and paper and sort of have flowcharts or anything like that. But more it was a case of responding to conditions as they arose. Um, so at first there were no rules. And then gradually when people started misunderstanding and making terrible mistakes, that they, they had to introduce um, different rules. And the Buddha would say, you foolish monk, you foolish nun, don't you realize that that's not going to be supportive, it's not going to arouse faith or encourage people. Um, and just encouraging the monks and nuns to live as, as worthy examples. And then to pass this down over generations. So I, 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 I marvel that the Buddha had the, had the wisdom, had the clarity to respond to each situation as it arose in a way that in the, at the end, by the time of the end of his life he'd established a very remarkable social structure um, that has been able to endure up until, up until the present time.
what I particularly like about the Buddha's dispensation is that it's a very empowering way of practice. Uh, as again, as was mentioned this morning, the Buddha, he didn't, uh, he couldn't do it for us, but what he could do is he could encourage us. He could remind us that each one of us has the capacity for realization. Each one of us. So you might think, oh, I'm a hopeless case. I'll never be any good. I can't do it. Well, that's the kind of thought I, I have it less now, I have to admit, but I <laughs> used, used to have a lot of that. You know, everybody else can do it, but I can't do it. Hopeless case. Uh, but over time, and with a lot of encouragement, gradually that changes to a sense of, well, yes, maybe I can do it. So we have to begin from where we are. With our own um, minds, our own bodies, our own history. <coughs> like the sort of karma package that we have. Our way of seeing the world, our life experience. That's what we start with. And whatever it is, you know, you might think, well, my life package is so hopeless, it's very unpromising. Actually, I think the most unpromising ones are the ones that are often the most productive. Uh, we can become an expert in <laughs> different difficulties, specialise. I specialise in jealousy, that's my, my speciality. <laughs> but other people specialise in anger or fear or... There's, there's all different specialities. So rather than seeing your difficulties as a terrible affliction, See it as a gateway. This is something that you can attend to. This is something you can learn from. You can unpick it. You can, you can look at it. I mean, you might go to a wise teacher who might say, well, your problem is this, and what you have to do is this. But actually, what I find it works better is actually just reading my own heart. I don't need somebody else to read my mind. I can read my own mind. Actually having the confidence to do that. Sometimes it... I mean, I think at first it can seem, well, how, how, do, how do I read my own mind? How do I go about it? And I think at first we tend to be very identified with the thoughts that we're having. So I find the best thing is like when, you're, when you are in a state of agitation or upset, rather than trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible, just try to notice, try to be aware of it, try to notice the kind of thoughts you're having. Notice how it affects you physically. Learn about it. Strangely enough, this is a way of letting go. Actually taking it up close and looking at it, standing back. So the Buddha said suffering has to be understood. And I don't know about you, but I certainly can't understand anything unless I look at it investigate it. 
study it. I don't understand it by getting rid of it as quickly as possible. So sometimes we need to, to investigate, to look, to learn. And then we can apply different teachings to figure out strategies. And we can invent our own strategies. That can be fun. Finding ways to encourage yourself. Coming to the monastery as often as you can. Because uh, you can get a lot of encouragement from, from people who, who are doing this practice. Having, if you have a group, going to a group regularly. Just practicing alongside other people. Um, and being willing to be very honest about things that are difficult. Honest with yourselves. You don't actually have to be honest with anybody else, but to be, to be, to be honest with yourself about things that you're frightened of, um, things that you're angry or upset about. And some of the things that we, get that we can get angry and upset about can seem very trivial, very stupid, foolish. And you think, well, I'm not going to tell anybody how upset I was about that because uh, you know, you're afraid of ridicule. But actually, um, it's really worth taking a look because the things that we get upset about are often where there's a sense of ego investment, a sense of self. And this is one of the things that we need to learn about. The Buddha said there's three, three characteristics, anicca, that I've already spoken about, dukkha, which I've already spoken about, anatta, not self, that nothing that we... Um, experience in the mind or the body is actually inherently who and what we are. We don't have to identify with it. But until we know that, of course, we keep identifying with it. So the encouragement is to investigate, to look, to see how things change. So in some ways it can seem like a very simple, nothing much kind of teaching. You know, I remember, and you know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. That's hardly sort of world-shaking world news. Five precepts, that is a very kind of modest little training in some ways. It looks like nothing very much or completely obvious, depending on how you look at it. You know, easy dismissed, who wants to bother about that? Or easy, no, um, I can do that, anybody can do that. But then when you actually really um, apply it, really investigate, you find that it's <coughs> the application of these very simple principles, very simple teachings, very simple guidelines that can have quite remarkable results. So when you read the scriptures, you read about the Buddha and how when he was born and when he was enlightened, when he died, that the whole earth shook and quaked and rocked and there was great radiance, great measureless radiance uh, appeared in the world and you think, wow, that must have been pretty amazing. What was that like? And then I contemplate how in these days you know, people are... Uh, hearing the teachings, practicing in this way, and little by little, there's a there's a kind of a radiance happening in the world, 
as each one of us um, learns how to see things more clearly, learns how to live more carefully and responsibly without causing harm to ourselves and to others. Um, as each one of us uses whatever skills we have to support the welfare of other beings and to consider nowadays the very um, pressing um, need to really consider how we can support uh, the well-being of planet Earth. What can we do to support that? So it's not just a kind of theoretical concern, it's a very practical concern and something for us to also uh, consider. So today we celebrate uh, the Buddha, we celebrate the fact that he uh, was born as a human being on this planet. We celebrate the fact that through his own uh, effort, his own uh, investigation, uh, he was able to realize uh, Nibbana, realize perfect peace, that unshakable deliverance of the heart that he then spent the next 45 years of his life supporting others um, according to their capacity to um, realize truth in the same way until finally uh, at Kushinagar between the twin salad trees he, he passed away his body died just in the same way that all of our bodies will die So as he said at the time of his death, it's in the nature of all things to uh, perish, or all things are, are impermanent, uh, strive on with diligence. So maybe I'd end my talk with that encouragement to each one of you to, to strive on with diligence and the, uh, don't lose track slight of the aspiration to realize perfect liberation of the heart in this lifetime. Andamayangovadakata Satu Karantatamase Sadu 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 Anumodami Ajahn, could you tell us where you live? Yes. In Perth? Tell us what your hermitage is like and I'm sure people are curious to visit you tomorrow. <laughs> I won't be there tomorrow. Oh, you won't be there tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> so I live in a... <clears throat> I think I'm going to tell you first how I got there, because, and then I'll tell you where it is. I got there, I'd been living in community for 30 years, either at Chithurst Monastery or Amarawati Monastery in England. And around about 15, well, it, it, it sort of arises periodically, this whole thing about monks and nuns and why, why are the nuns lower and the monks higher and why do the monks go first and the nuns go second, all of that. And the answer seemed to be, or, or 
one way of solving the problem seemed to be, well, let's separate the monks and nuns. You know, the nuns can live here and the monks can live here and that'll, that'll solve the problem. And there were thoughts of, at least I, I don't know how serious it was, but one, one monk suggested just shipping all the nuns out to some, some location far away. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was taking care of mom. <laughs> and I thought, actually, no, I didn't think that's going to work. Plus the fact, I, I really felt that we were part of the fabric of those two monasteries. I, I wasn't going to give up on Chithurst or Amarawati that easily. But I thought what would work, what we could try, is to have um, a monastery just for nuns. We had tried that some years previously, uh, when the nuns were given um, a monastery in, in Devon. I mean, it's, it's, it was a monastery that, that was part of our community, and there were no monks who wanted to live there, so it was offered to the nuns. And we were there for three years. And two things that really struck me about that time, I actually wasn't very interested in being just in a nuns-only monastery. Um, but one of the things I noticed was that it was a, it, the kind of general morale of the nuns' community just lifted um, when we had our own place. And also I sensed that other people viewed us differently, that we weren't always sort of uh, having to sort of ask permission for everything. Um, the other thing that struck me was it was incredibly difficult <laughs> to have a small community of people living together. So when I thought about when I thought about this idea of having a place just for nuns, uh, there was a kind of caution. But I thought, well, Chandasiri, you've been a nun for longer than anybody else in this outfit. So if uh, if anybody can do it, maybe you can do it. Plus the fact that since then we've done lots of kind of psychotherapy and things like that to learn how to live together. So I thought, well, maybe this time we can we can it it, uh, it will be more. Um, fruitful, because the Devon Monastery, in the end, we'd had to, we had to leave. We, it, it, it didn't work out very well. Um, although, for three years, we did, we did fine, but then... So, I decided to begin um, looking for somewhere. Um, at that time, my parents had just passed away. There was a large legacy that my sister, my sister suggested. She said, well, why don't you try and find a monastery? place where you can have you know, your own monastery and I think she had in mind a little kind of retirement cottage somewhere where <laughs> I could live happily sort of knitting live out my days <laughs> but I I, I, good. <laughs> I had a I had a different different vision so my vision was to find somewhere where you know, a group of four or five nuns could live together, where we could have um, a kuti or two, where nun, nuns from Amarawati or Chithas could come for a few months, spend time in retreat, and we could support them. Um, and a place where we wouldn't have to work so hard, and where there wouldn't be so many visitors. Uh, because Amarawati and Chithas, those of you who have visited will know, they tend to be quite busy places. A lot of people come. Um, and stay. And so the nuns, they do a lot of counselling, a lot of all kinds of things they do. They're very busy. And I thought a place that they could be a little bit quieter um, and more time for meditation. That was my idea. So um, I talked with Ajahn Sumedho and he agreed that I could begin to look. 
I talked to Ajahn Munindo, who has a monastery in Northumberland, which is in England, just over the border from Scotland. Because one of the conditions that my sister made was to have a place in Scotland. And uh, so I was talking to Ajahn Munindo and sort of saying, well, I was thinking either north or south of Edinburgh, but um, actually I think north would be better because, you know, just to have more, more separation, I thought it would be good for us to not be too close. And he said, no, just as long as you're over the border, that'll be fine. <laughs> But anyway, I still wanted to go north. So um, I thought about an hour or an hour and a half drive from Edinburgh and Glasgow, <coughs> two main cities in Edinburgh, in, in, in Scotland. And eventually, after looking for three and a half, four years, I found a place uh, in Perthshire, um, about 24 miles from the city of Perth, which I think, I think might have been established before your Perth. And near a village, uh, well, a, a village called Comrie. The interesting thing about Comrie is that it's actually twinned with Carlton Place, which is just down the road here. Which um, there's a sign as you go into Comrie saying "twinned with Carlton Place." I think I wrote to you maybe and asked. Yes. If, if, if you knew Carlton Place, and you said yes, you did. So that I, know, is, that I know the Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> and Starbucks. And Starbucks. <laughs> so, um, so I live two miles out of Conway <coughs> in a very beautiful, um, it feels very remote, but it's actually quite accessible, so people can get there. It's an hour's drive from Edinburgh Airport. Um, our nearest neighbour is about a quarter of a mile away, 10, 15, well, five, ten minute walk up the hill. Um, there are very few people live around there. In, in, it, it's kind of like a farming country. Lots of sheep. I really like sheep. <laughs> and cows. So that's where I live. Um, about an hour from Edinburgh, about an hour from Glasgow, about 45 minutes from Perth. Um, on the edge of the Highlands. In fact, the Highland Boundary Fault, I think, goes... In Scotland, we call them glens, not valleys, but through the middle of the glen where I live, I think, is the Highland Boundary Fault. So there are lots of earthquakes there. We have Earthquake House in the village, which is a little tiny shed, like one of your cooties. Earthquake House, where they had the very first instrument for measuring earthquakes. And so... And what is your uh, what is your building? What is, does it have? So there's a house with um, five bedrooms. Uh, some of them are rather small. Um, a big shrine room with um, big windows. A lovely outlook. Lots of trees and hills and water. We have waterfalls. The land is twelve point something acres, but it feels bigger than that because it's long and narrow and we have open land all around. Uh, we have one kuti and we have a shepherd hut which is like your, well like where I'm staying now actually, yeah. on wheels. Um, and we're hoping to have another kuti soon. And at the moment when people ask me how big the community is I have to kind of say well actually at the moment it's, it's still just one, a community of one. <laughs> um, Partly just because nuns take quite a while to grow. <laughs> I remember one time somebody saying, you know, why, why can't we have more nuns? And I say, well, 
they, they don't just grow on trees, you know. <laughs> so um, we're, we're, we're growing slowly. We had quite a severe coppicing some years ago, and we're just beginning to, to sprout back again. And uh, so the, the Amarawati community, there are seven nuns, I think, seven in brown, and five or six novices. And then at Chithurst Monastery, there's a couple of nuns living there now with a couple of novices and Moon Tume. We sometimes have a novice and the nuns visit from time to time. So we are back and forth a bit, although it's quite a long journey between the places. There's a sort of hour, hour's plane ride or half a day on the train, but it's, it's doable. So. And Ken, Ken, how can we help you? We as a community, how can we help you? Oh, just lots of encouragement. <laughs> can we all awesome. come and visit? You can. You can come. Any of you would be welcome to visit, definitely. And I hope you'll come one day. Well, I've already said that, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How do you recruit? Do I recruit? Do you recruit? Well, you go on the internet. <laughs> at the moment, How do we recruit these guys? I don't. I don't recruit Anagari cars, um, but they get recruited at Amarawati. So, at the moment, the way our community is structured, if anybody wants to be an Anagari car, they need to spend time at Amarawati. That's the main training place for Anagari cars. And sometimes when they go there, when they say, I want to be Anagari Car, they get sent up to me and I can check them out. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll come and spend a few weeks with me and then uh, they can be ordained at Amarawati. But who knows? Who knows? I, I'm really interested in keeping Milne Tume, which is what it's called, Milne Tume Hermitage, to keep it rather quiet. So I don't, I don't really want it to get too big or too famous. And that's why I don't have a website, and people have to look quite hard yeah. to, to find me. <laughs> that's clever. Yeah. Uh, so how do you find you to get to get <laughs> <laughs> Enough people have found me t to feed me. <laughs> yeah, somebody caught, has cottoned on to the Tesco delivery possibility, so Tesco. now I get have Tesco deliveries. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, we, we, we are very comfortably supported um, for what we have and what we need right now. And you have beavers. And we have beavers, yes. <laughs> yes, which um, they, they arrived about 18 months ago. And uh, they reintroduced. they've been reintroduced into Scotland because they'd completely died out. In fact, none of the wildlife books have got anything about beavers in them. It's quite interesting. You could take one back. I, well, yes, that's an interesting thought. We have lots of aspen, that's what they like. Yes, yes. yum, yum, yum. Yes. <laughs> so in fact, somebody, I, I've befriended the Scottish wild beaver group. And, one, one of the, and their, their job is to keep people like me happy, actually. Because? So that I, so that I don't try to get rid of the beavers. Oh. Yeah, they're very good. And... Um, 
they said, one of them said, that it was the best site he'd seen for beavers in Scotland. Oh, hey. yes. But actually, we should keep that a secret. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. one of the concerns about beavers is that people will want to come and see them. Yeah, because of tourists. So. Yeah. Right. But there are lots of other places in Perthshire where, they, where you can see beavers. We've got a lot of beavers in Perthshire. So it's so yeah. rare that you get a sighting in people come and flock with the cars and stuff like that. It could happen, okay. yes. So I, I don't talk about it in Comrie. <laughs> but just, the, just abroad. Word, word, is, word is slightly getting around. Yeah. So. The uh, series stayed in the kitty over here, as well as in the house. And uh, there's a new beaver dam being built just below her yeah. kitty. <laughs> She's yes. got beaver karma. <laughs> yes. It's been, actually, it's been very interesting because when I first came across them, I was absolutely besotted with them. You know, I would go and sit there in the evening for hours, actually, and just watch and just delight and uh -huh. internally. And then they built this dam and then the water level started rising. And then my relationship changed. <laughs> Significantly, <laughs> and uh, to be sort of quite, I, I became rather concerned and worried. I mean, I knew that there was no way I was going to harm them, but I was also concerned. And they were eating the trees too, <laughs> <laughs> and leaving. Well, it looked to me like a terrible mess. But the beaver, <laughs> the Scottish beaver group, have been educating me, and I'm getting to realize that the mess is just nature. That's what nature is. Nature is a bit of a mess sometimes. <laughs> and I'm also learning about the fact that you can't always get along with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> because we have different, different needs. Mm -hmm. So the beavers need deep water and I need my pathway. So now we have a beaver deceiver. A beaver, tell us what a beaver deceiver is. <laughs> beaver deceiver is a long, long, long pipe that goes through the dam. And so the water can flow through the pipe and out of, over, over where the dam is. And it goes down into the pond and there's a big metal cage around the end of it. So the poor beavers, they can't block it up. <laughs> so it keeps draining their pond. So it keeps draining, well it keeps the pond level at a level that I'm happy with. And they and keep making it higher? <laughs> well they can't. They can't. Whereas before, my first, my first trick was to put a couple of you know, pipes like this through the dam. And I was really pleased with myself. Because <laughs> I, I stuck these pipes through and the water level went down, the water came pouring out. But the trouble was that at night they got busy and they blocked them up. <laughs> so then in the morning I had to unblock them. And this went on for several weeks, actually, until the beaver deceiver came. I thought, we can't live like this. <laughs> so so uh, you, you love being here. So I'm very happy yeah. there, yes. It's, 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 a great, it's a great joy, and um, I'm really... I feel very grateful that this is the way that my life has led me, and I look forward to having a community of sisters there with me, that will be, um, and I'm beginning to put pressure, I, because um, it would be good if they could get there before I lose my marbles <laughs> <laughs> or, or pop my clogs. <laughs> so I'm, um, 
yeah, just it's it's it's, it's a matter of faith and uh, uh, I have a practice of of enjoying life, so mm. that's that's quite helpful. Mm. A, a commitment to enjoy life. Yeah, very good. Everyone hear that? I think I, I, this this is this is I think our, our duty as senior people is to enjoy life. Because if we can't, yes. <laughs> what's the point of doing this for 40 years, right? And to support everyone else in enjoying life too. In a, in a good way, not to do things that are going to undermine... Anyway. I, I have a bit of a sneaky question, uh, a rather selfish one. I know there is a certain cut-off date for men to take the path going forward. Is, it a, is there a concession for women? Because they must have gotten uh, you know, entangled with being ma a mother and, and all of that. Is there a concession for women? <laughs> in, in it depends where you go. Uh, in our community, at the moment, 50 is the cutoff. But I always say to people, that's the cutoff for becoming Anagari Carr. It doesn't mean that you can't practice wherever you are, whatever your situation. All it needs is a bit of creativity, ingenuity, and an understanding of the basic principles. If you do that, then you can use whatever situation you're in to liberate yourself. It's something that I've said this morning. It's, it's, um, so if somebody is young, young and would like to be a nun, I'm, and I, I'm very happy to encourage them, and if they're older, I'm not able to be a nun. I'm very happy to encourage them as best I can. And it may change when we have more <coughs> monasteries mm -hmm. and more places where women can train, then I, I would hope that we could have more of an age range because um, there are many women, as you say, who have families and have to wait. And that's always a little bit unfortunate or can seem unfortunate. It doesn't need to be unfortunate, it can seem unfortunate. <laughs>